good morning. My name is Nate Foreman. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, um, I am the leader of the Siebert MC um, at Let's Go. We're a rowdy crowd. At, at Cross City, we have something instead of small groups um, we or cell groups. Um, we ha are intentional about calling our groups missional communities um, with the intentionality of being um, on mission together um, for the kingdom where we are. And bear with me, I am not a preacher by vocation. I'm a pediatrician by training. So, um, but we have, if you're just joining us, we're going through um, uh, this Advent season, a series through um, carols and hymns. Um, and so uh, this week, our, our carol that we're doing is Joy to the World, let earth receive her king. Um, really excited um, to be really impacting the kingship of Christ, what that means for us and what that means for our lives um, and, our, and our mission here on earth. Um, so let's pray. Jesus, I'm really excited for this morning, for this time that you have given us to be together in your word. Um, I just present myself as a vessel for you. Let nothing unwholesome or untrue come out of my mouth. Holy Spirit, we... Um, welcome you into this place that you would fill our hearts and minds um, with your presence, that we would know you deeper and more truly this morning. Amen. So Joy to the World um, is actually one of the most popular Christmas carols, actually the most popular Christmas carol in English. Um, it was originally not a Christmas carol. It was written as a hymn um, by a Mr. Isaac Watts, uh, summarizing Psalm 96 through 98. And I just wanted to read the verses because um, it's something that we oftentimes will sing and yeah, we know all the words, but sometimes when you see the words or read them more slowly, um, you get a little bit more out of it. So joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glory and glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The focus of this really is on Jesus, which is interesting that he summarized a psalm that was written thousands of years before Jesus' birth, but it foretold of the coming of the king. When the angel spoke to Mary and told her in Luke chapter 1 that, he was going to, that she was going to give birth, he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will, God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Even from before his birth, Jesus was foretold to be a king. He was a king. And that's what we celebrate at this time of Christmas, is we get to celebrate that Jesus came to, to secure his rule and reign on this world. You know, in, in America, we're really not good at, at recognizing kings or understanding about kings because we don't like kings. You know, 250 years ago, we declared our independence from a king and we don't want any more kings. Um, but 
the gospel teaches us that there is a good king and a true king, and actually we should desire the best king for our lives. I'm not very good at thinking about kings. I think, uh, I think of like the, the tyrants or middle, middle ages. They got a bunch of knights. They go around. They beat up people. They flog the women, and they, they steal from the beggars. I don't know. I, not many good pictures of kings come to my mind. Uh, so I, I wanted to go through about what, what would make a good king, if, if we had to imagine what would make a good king, and kind of compare that to what the Bible says about Jesus, or what Jesus says about himself. So one of the first things I thought of was, a good king has to lead with humility. They have to walk humbly before um, their people. They have to care about them. And uh, Philippians 2, let's talk about Jesus being the ultimate sign of humility. He's, uh, in Philippians 2, he says, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The next thing I thought of was kings have to protect their people. You know, they go to war, they fight with armies, but they don't just go to war to, like, get new territory. They, a lot of the times they go to war to protect their people from invaders. Jesus talked about himself a lot as, as a shepherd, or he was explained a lot as a shepherd who cares well for his sheep. And he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not only does the king protect his people, but he also makes laws. Laws aren't there just because they want to like, tell us what to do all the time, but laws are important for us to take care of ourselves and to, and to make sure that there's governance. Um, Jesus talks multiple times throughout John 15 and other places, He who loves me keeps my commandments. Uh, he also says, he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And finally, a good king is generous with what he has. Can I think of somebody more generous than Jesus? In fact, he talks about, in Luke 7, the, the, what generosity is apparent is, and how God the Father compares to that. He says, in Luke 7, verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who receives, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, the one, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for a piece of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? These are all different aspects of what I thought when I think of a king. These are things that kings, most kings are lacking. But these are things, these are aspects that apply to Jesus as well. He came to rule and to reign, not as a tyrant, not as somebody who beats other people up, but as a humble leader who led by example and led first by laying down his life. He led in a way that no other king has ever led his country. 
And he took the way that leaders lead and he kind of turned that upside down. He talked about the last being first. We don't need to fear that a tyrant is leading the world or our lives or our kingdom. But we can rest in the comfort knowing that Jesus was born to be the true king, the perfect king of the world. Backwards. I, I learned from Scott Burns on how to work this thing, so. But Jesus isn't automatically our king. It's not something that we just get immediately because we're born into this world, and now we get to have Jesus as our king. Um, in fact, the Bible talks multiple places, notably in Romans 9, for while we were enemies with God, and he talks elsewhere about us being aliens, alienated from the Lord. We're born enemies, citizens of the kingdom of this world. We were born into darkness, and all we know is darkness. We follow the king of ourselves. That's the king that we know. We walk in the flesh. We walk in our kingdom of darkness. We walk in the delusion that we, being kings of ourselves, is what makes us free. I get to choose what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and that is freedom. But the Bible kind of turns that around and shows us that that's actually slavery. Adam and Eve kind of walked first, take the, took the first step into that, into that world of, of, of darkness. And I think it, it, it bears witness into what we as well do. So going to Genesis chapter 3. Now the, servant, the serpent was more crafty than any beast. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how he kind of twisted what God said there. And the woman's like, yeah, we can eat any fruit except for the fruit in the middle of the garden because if we eat of that, then surely as soon as we touch it, we're going to die. And then the serpent started and he said, but you're not really going to die. God knows that when, when you eat of it, you'll become like him. He doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want you to be king. He wants to be king. And so Eve kind of that first time took the step to realize, to think that, ah, I don't think I want God's king, kingship in my life. I want to be my own king. But the moment that she did that herself, she actually became enslaved to sin, enslaved to her flesh. These are the same temptations that we face every day. That God, we think that God is restricting us from something that we want. God, oh, God doesn't want me to have that. He's just being a boss and he's being mean and I don't want that God. But really, God is wanting what's best for us. Christ calls us out of slavery. In, in John 8, he says, Truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And a slave of sin is not a permanent member of a family. But the Son belongs to that family forever. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In Romans 6, he talks about, Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, that you are slaves to whom you obey, either of sin, you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? It's kind of so different from what we think of in our, in our country. We think, oh, I have to live, walk in freedom. I need my freedom, and I want to be free to do whatever I want. But actually, if we, obe if we obey the Lord, that is walking in real freedom. 
Christ calls us out of darkness, out of the slavery that we're living, to walk in his light. And how did he do that? He did it by making the ultimate sacrifice. He behaved as no one would expect any king would. He looked at the kingdom of darkness. He looked at you. He looked and he saw you in the dirt and the grime where you were. And he said, I want to die for you. It's mind-blowing. Paul kind of described it a little bit in Romans 5. Um, and I think this, this, these couple of verses have really shaped my understanding uh, of gospel and then my view of myself as well. For at the right time, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man Though for a good man, maybe someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him? For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus, the true and perfect king, came into the kingdom of darkness, laid down his life for us so that we could become citizens, and not only citizens, but heirs. Of his kingdom of light. That's amazing. That's crazy. No king has ever done anything like that before. And during this time of Advent, Advent we get to remember what it is that Jesus came to do. And it, and it allows us, I've been really enjoying some of our discussions in, in MC, discussing about Jesus being fully God, but also focusing on the fully human aspect of him as well. He was born into a stable. He was laid into a feed trough. His parents were scandalous. You know, a bunch of people died around him. The first people that proclaimed his birth were shepherds who were kind of recognized as lower people. But we get to real, we, we, we have this opportunity to remember that, that, Advent, that Jesus was fully human. And God took himself and he put him into this little baby and got the and God lived on earth. And he didn't just live a perfect life to, to die on the cross for no good reason. He did this because he cares about you and me. Jesus being king adds a whole nother layer to our understanding of gospel. As we pursue the gospel, know the gospel, share the gospel, it's important that we recognize him as king, lord, master, not just friend and brother. It changes our view. It changes our perspective. When we, especially when you talk, if you've hung around Cross City enough, you've seen Scott's Gospel in Six, you know kind of the progression of things. So, so focusing specifically here, offer is where the kingship of Christ makes a huge difference. It means that we treat him as our king. It means that our lives now reflect his kingship. It means that our lives are not our own anymore, but we, we, we lay them down in service of the true king. And Wes is going to come up now, and he's going to take us through what that looks like for, the, for our lives and, and how that does change our perspective.
Amen. Thanks, brother. We've, uh, this has been really good. We've spent time already this morning in the Word of God, and um, this is his revelation to us about what he cares about, that his kingdom is good. We've learned this. Uh, like Nate was saying, we are called out of slavery, free indeed as we walk in his light. And Scripture reveals who he is, what he cares about. When God's words are given to us, a response is necessary. And we will give a response. Everyone gives a response when they hear God's word. For the remainder of our time uh, today, let's consider how, and this is the main point. I, I don't even have bullets. This is the main point for today. The rightful response to our king is worship. So that's kind of like, as long as I'm up here like yakking away, that is, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about. The rightful response to our king is worship. Uh, to help instruct us, we'll look at some expressions of worship recorded in Scripture by some of the first people who got to meet Jesus, like Nathaniel saying, like shepherds. So lace up your hiking boots. We are going to finish out today with a short Advent stroll, glancing down a couple paths of worshipful response to our King, and ending with communion together. All right. Let's treat Matthew 2 as our kind of our home base for now. Uh, so if you have your Bible, feel free to flip to Matthew 2. But I'll, I'll read all the other stuff. I'll, I've got some other things I'll, I'll kind of read, but um, you might want to pen if you want to like, write some other things down. Now, we don't know a lot about uh, the wise men that are recorded here in Scripture, but we can trust that we were given important information in Scripture, and we were given the necessary amount of information here in Scripture. Matthew 2. Uh, verses 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now I'm going to skip momentarily down to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So presented by the wise men are precious, costly gifts, fit for a king, presented as an act of worship and honor of who Jesus is. They are described here as opening their treasures to worship Jesus. And we get a glimpse into the sincerity of their heart and their belief that they found Jesus worthy of a great honor above the treasure that they were holding in their hand. We know there is a deep link between treasure and our heart because Jesus said so. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it seems that man's desire is ever towards the greater treasure, and so is our heart. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So in his joy, so I was just kind of thinking, that's kind of interesting, this like idea of like, you know, you're kind of like trading things here, uh, and you're excited about something. Have you ever been excited about like a purchase, a sale, maybe an investment, some transaction where you feel like you're coming out, at least it's a fair trade, but maybe you get more excited the more you think you're like the scales are tipping in your favor a little bit. 
Perhaps there was something non-monetary, something sentimental that you were uh, acquiring. You have some treasure of money or resources, but you're willing to trade them for something you value as greater and which brings you greater joy. So this is getting closer, perhaps, to what's describing on here. Maybe we could sort of understand that as a feeling of what they might have been experiencing. But what they're engaged in is not a transaction at all, but rather it's a gift and a beautiful testimony about what they find as a greater treasure, Jesus. They are described as approaching Jesus, falling down and worshiping him. And earlier they were described as rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. This is sincere worship from the heart, not an obligation or duty or transaction. And this sounds a lot like what we read in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's another really cool picture of like this, this giving out of there's a joy for worship. There's a, there's a giving, there's a, a wanting to give gifts in, in, in worship. King David, who wrote many of our psalms, he's considered a, a great worshiper. He demonstrates this cheerful giving um, and has this really sweet prayer here that I'm going to read. Um, this is right before the congregation, right as they're ready to give an enormous amount of money to build a temple. I mean, just like an unfathomable amount of money that is being like gathered in worship of God. And this is what David says. All that is in, sorry, First Chronicles 29. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom of the Lord and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Just love that. Like this, like, it's just like this overflow of worship for God. And it's just like, I'm just, like, I'm so excited. I'm worshiping you. I'm giving you back, but it's already yours. I'm just giving you your stuff back. It's like, this, like, really, it's just interesting to be, like, us to have a hand in that. We see the kings, like, they're, or the, uh, the wise men, they're just so excited. They're just spilling gifts to, to Mary, to Jesus. Jesus is worthy of us opening our treasures in worship of him. After all, it's already all his. But if we're to engage in true worship that brings pleasure to God, then it must be from our heart. The Lord sees and judges the motivations of our heart and cannot be deceived. There's a cool picture, Mark 12. Um, Jesus is in the temple. It says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. Now, this is not simply just a lesson in fractions by our king. <laughs> like, it's a pretty good one, but it's, it's not just that. And that's, that used to be my understanding of this. Like, well, okay, you know, she gave two out of two of all she had. That's 100%. They probably gave, you know, like 1%. Uh, but I think, really, what also is happening here is Jesus is describing how this widow is demonstrating true worship from the heart, opening her treasure to the Lord at a deep heart level. This, in contrast to the rich who are contributing out of abundance, 
not maybe in an evil way, but perhaps from a lesser treasure, not tapped deeply to their heart. Jesus is seeing a difference because he can see hearts. So he can, he can make those claims. We can't make those claims. We can't see people's hearts. There's another cool contrast in this idea of like, what are we offering in worship to the Lord? Whatever it is. There's another cool picture in Genesis 4. The difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering. Abel's offering was found pleasing to God, but Cain's was not. And from the conversation that Cain has with God, it appears that God has judged there's something particularly wrong at the heart level with Cain. It's not super clear what is maybe wrong with his offering as like you read the, the words, but God sees something is wrong with Cain's offering. So anyway, many sermons can be made on the topic of treasure in our hearts. We could venture down the path to talk about the warnings from Jesus not to let his words be choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, Matthew 13. Or we could talk about being on guard, trying to serve two masters, God and money, Luke 16. We could talk about how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils from Timothy 6. But today, let's try to stay focused on one main point. The heart of the matter, our great king is of infinitely greater value than any earthly treasure. And the degree of our willingness to lay our earthly possessions at the feet of the King Jesus in worship reflects our true belief about whether he is worthy of all that worship. Something else we can observe in this story of the wise men is their prioritization of time for worship. Under no compulsion, they have embarked on a journey, leaving their home country for the sole purpose of searching for and worshiping Jesus. Another cool picture of this kind recorded about the same time were the shepherds who received the heavenly chorus proclaiming the birth of Jesus Christ. And Luke 2.15 goes on like this. When the angels went away from them in the he- into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, in the shepherd, and then verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. They are moved to take action urgently at the arrival of the king. And when they leave his presence, they continue to tell people what they have heard and seen. The shepherds are excited. They're in awe. They're full of wonder. Out of the overflow of their hearts, they are sharing the news with others. They are glorifying and praising God. I don't know what all is involved in caring for sheep, but I'm imagining that at that moment, there was probably work to be done. They were doing something with the sheep. I don't know. There's probably things to do. But there's this call to worship from the angels. And it says, nevertheless, they went with haste to find Jesus. So we encountered this other type of treasure, a treasure of, we'll say, time. I don't know. Maybe there's like a proper name for it, but I'll call it the treasure of time. Sounds like a movie. I don't know. So the treasure of time. It's our own time. Time being ours to spend however we wish. Some of us guard this more strongly than others, but I believe we do all battle with this to some degree. Our church is filled with people pursuing a lot of things. Many of these things are good gifts to pursue. Education, careers, homes, families, maybe some of us spouses, children. We dedicate time and pursue these things which we believe have value or are perhaps urgent. 
True worshipers, thinking rightly, understand that time with our king is more valuable than time spent any other way. I love the short story in uh, Luke 10. Um, perhaps you've heard it. This is Mary and Martha. It says uh, Luke 10:38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I love this. Can you feel the frustration for Martha? I wonder, it doesn't say, but I wonder what Martha did. Did she heed the words of Jesus and sit down too? If so, who would do all the work, right? Who's doing all the work? That's how it often is, though, with worship. There will always be work to be done that we can argue needs done before we make time for worshiping our king. It is not a requirement that worship must be efficient, convenient, scheduled. It is a fine and good thing for worship to interrupt our regularly scheduled lives. If worship of God is never interrupting or superseding our schedule or planned activities, then we should consider how deep our affection is truly for him. The truest worshipers of Jesus consider their time most well spent in his presence. Like we discussed regarding earthly possessions earlier, we can say time with our great king is of infinitely greater value than any other earthly pursuit. The degree of our willingness to lay our plans, our pursuits, our desires, and hobbies at the feet of King Jesus in worship reflects our true belief about whether he is worthy of all worship. So speaking of responses to the, res the arrival of Jesus, we should probably mention a really bad response. King Herod. We skipped this part earlier. Let's take a, a little look here. We're back in Matthew 2, 3. The wise men have entered town. They're asking, they're asking, where is this king? Where is the king? And Herod, the king, also a king, knows he's a lesser king, heard this. He was troubled. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. We know this because we have the wealth of scripture at our fingertips. He enjoys the worship of himself. We see later that, in fact, he is a mass murderer as he seeks to destroy King Jesus. Who he sees as a threat to his own kingship. Herod would like to remain on his throne, thank you very much, and not submit to any other king. Rebellion is his chosen response. Also another reality check. Uh, someone else who really gets the concept of worship is Satan. Matthew 4, 8, this is Jesus being tempted. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is a great battle for worship. Satan is coming and trying to get Christ to worship him. He understands, Satan understands the deity of God. He understands the kingship of Jesus. He understands that all things were created through him. That he reigns over all nations and kingdoms. He's highly exalted over every other name. That every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2, what Nathaniel wrote, or read. He understands the dramatic shift in power to take place if he could just deceive the Son of Man, weaken his flesh, and convince him to bow and submit to someone other than the Father. Fortunately, Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen. It would have been a lie and sinful for Jesus to bow and submit to someone other than his heavenly Father. Improper worship, sinful worship. Satan is described in scripture as the ruler or God of this world. He is being worshipped in so many ways right now as he weaves his deception and lies. But our King Jesus will not ever bow a knee to Satan. He already has defeated him. Ever since Satan rebelled against God, there has been a battle for worship. And it's no small thing. When we worship Jesus, we, pro- we correctly proclaim Jesus as the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords, the only one worthy of worship. John four twenty three says, this is Jesus speaking, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God sees our true heart's desire. He's not deceived, like we often are, about the condition and motives of our hearts. He's able to accurately and justly judge a true worshiper from a wicked servant or worker of lawlessness. Friends, we don't, we don't have to figure this all out on our own. And indeed, we cannot. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. Moreover, we just studied last week that Jesus understands our weaknesses and has sympathy on us, which is very comforting. Nevertheless, let's not set the bar lower or higher than what Christ has set it. What does our king command? What pleases him? Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. His desire is for all of us. The lyrics to Joy to the World include, Let every heart prepare him room. King Jesus is deserving of our worship. Shove all of your other treasure aside and make room for King Jesus first in your heart. Not just alongside all your other treasure, but above and far exceeding all your other treasure. With joy and gladness, let's worship him. Let's rejoice greatly. And if you don't feel joyful, And like rejoicing, don't fake it. There's no point in that. Go before our great God and ask him for help and growth in your love for your affection for him. 
that your joy may be full. The riches of his love far exceed any other treasure or experience in this life. In just a few minutes, we are going to celebrate communion together as a church. Um, We do this every couple of weeks. And if you don't yet have your communion cup, they're available in the back. You'll have a moment to grab them. Uh, This is something very special to Jesus. And it's just for those of us who have accepted his kingship over our lives, submitting to him as our Lord and Savior. He as the one who paid for our sins and made a way for us to be with God forever as his children. So there might be someone here today who even started the service in rebellion to Jesus, but now in your heart you bow to Christ and worship him for what he's done and who he says he is. And if that's you, please join us in communion this morning. So I'll pray as uh, Nathaniel comes back up and we'll walk us through communion together. Lord, we, we humbly submit to you, Lord. You are our king. You are worthy of all worship, Lord. You are exalted above every, every other thing, Lord. You are more precious than all treasure, all experiences. Lord, you are king of kings and lord of lords, Lord. And we, we testify to that this morning, Lord. We proclaim your name is greater than any other. We love you, Lord. Please be with us this this season as we are busy and our time is under pressure and we're filling up our houses with more treasure, Lord. Help us ever to see you as the greater and better treasure, Lord. Worship you with sincere hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.